David, Meg Whitman, the CEO of Quibi, is speaking at this week's Democratic National Convention. What I want to know is, could anything be a sign of worse luck for the Democrats than the CEO of Quibi speaking at their convention? As uh, many people, including Josh Barrow, pointed out, she's actually listed on the whatever the the notes that the DNC sent out as Meg Whitman, former CEO of Hewlett Packard, which I, <laughs> which speaks to exactly. I think that answers the question for you. I mean, that's what uh, I'm sure. Uh, you know, you could imagine Bill's reaction if you went out on a speaking tour, billing yourself as like former writer for Slate.com. Yeah. You know? Mr. Curtis, what have you been doing since the uh, since the slate days? Kind of a blank spot yeah. here. Yeah. More people no. will stream the Democratic convention or consume it than will have consumed any show on Quibi, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So Meg Whitman, the CEO of this streaming service that has been like an exploding cigar, is getting more play by giving a political speech than actually coming up with shows. Do you think she's going to wear a Quibi shirt? Like onto the stage. You remember, like when this is gonna date me significantly, but when Macy Gray like popped up on the Video Music wow. Awards, the Grammys were wearing a dress advertising her new album dropping. That's what Meg Meg Whitman needs to do. <laughs> Just like you know. Quibi, Quibi free for a year with this code, you know, you know, and just and and just like you know, act like act totally normal, like she's not doing an ad. <laughs> I am, I am so into that. It's time for the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here with lots to get to today. We'll do some NBA playoff media notes. Like, is the league's biggest free agent a reporter? Sham Sharania, plus Alex Thompson, excellent reporter from Politico, joins to tell us what Barack Obama really thought about his vice president, Joe Biden, and what it's like to cover 2020 from the couch instead of the campaign trail. All that plus David guesses a strained pun headline and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, tonight is the first night of the Democratic Convention. Yeah. Which is a virtual convention. Uh. <laughs> and if you're thinking, wait, I don't really understand what virtual convention means, you're not alone. This was Anderson Cooper on his CNN show last night. So I just, I mean, uh, and I don't know if we know the details on this, but I, I'm just, I don't quite understand what it's going to, I still don't understand what it's going to look like. It's, it's Say it starts at 8 p.m. Right. I mean, is there somebody emceeing it? Wait, like, what's the right. first thing people see? I was so heartened to hear that. Is somebody emceeing it? Because I, I felt like I had missed a big article or some sort of memo that had gone out. <laughs> but in fact, nobody really knows what the Democratic convention is going to look like until we see it tonight. But David, a few details leaked out Sunday, late on Sunday. I'm going to read them to you and you tell me what sounds good about the Democratic convention and what sounds like it might be a train wreck. All right. Okay. All right, number one, this year's Democratic convention is going to be a shorter convention. In the before time, we'd be in the Fiserv Forum in Milwaukee for like six hours a night from Monday through Thursday. This year, because the Fiserv Forum has been abandoned, the Democrats are only going to do two hours a night. And the broadcast networks will probably only show one of those hours at 10 p.m. Eastern. I think we're both totally good with yes. shorter convention, right? Amen. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, see, I mean, listen, the speeches were interminable, but it's not just the primetime speeches, which I guess is what we're going to be seeing, right? But it's in previous years, it's the it's everything that came before. It's sort of that Super Bowl uh, aspect of you don't quite know when the real game starts. So you just end <laughs> up watching like 14 hours of, you know, lesser Castro brothers speak. Totally. You're like, why am I you're like, why am I watching Chuck Schumer right now? And you realize like, oh, wait, this is a like seven ET because they didn't want anybody to watch this. But CNN is carrying it anyway, which brings me to point number two. No more long speeches this year outside of the DNC's five set piece speeches. Those are the Bidens, the Obamas and Kamala Harris. The average length for remarks will be just two minutes, according to Reed Epstein and Asted Herndon in The New York Times. Two minutes. Wow. Bernie Sanders, who's one of the big speakers tonight, gets only eight minutes. So are we on board for 
soundbite length speeches from Democratic politicians. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of I mean, I, I know that some of them are going to be pre-taped. I don't know if that's a point that you're about to get to, uh, but the there's length. I mean, there's like, you know, required length and then there's fun- practical or functional length. You know, I mean, the length that these speeches actually run. Um, if they can actually keep them to that size, that that length and and uh, and have them still be, you know, con- concise, have them have them say everything the candidate wants to say in that span of time, it could it, that could be a hugely positive change. It's almost like they're changing the rules for why you get to speak and how long, because I always felt like it was about, to some extent, power within the party. Right. Chuck Schumer, to take him as an example, again, is a powerful Democrat. Mm-hmm. So there's almost some expectation. Well, of course, Chuck Schumer is going to get 10 minutes during the Democratic convention. Yeah. Now, with a shorter convention, we're like, you know, Chuck Schumer, maybe we'll give you 30 seconds. Or maybe actually we'll just have you nodding on a webcam and smiling somewhere while <laughs> somebody else who is more designed to directly appeal to potential voters or fire up Democratic voters is going to talk. Yeah. It's almost like a value change, is it not? I mean, it's a value change. And listen, uh, I'm not going to take anything away from Chuck Schumer and his <laughs> implicit desire to be on camera his for as much time style. as possible. <laughs> no, no, I'm in the other way. I think that I, I don't, I don't want to devalue Chuck, Chuck Schumer's um, uh, self-importance uh, at all. But I do think probably party-wide, this is a change that, and country-wide, this is a change that you know has has people have probably been angling for for some amount of time. It's just hard to find the excuse. I mean, I don't know how do you I don't know how who's going to who, what, what politician is going to be willing to be the first one to take the the two to do the two minute speech, especially if the next night they're like, you know what, that didn't work. Let's go back to two hours. <laughs> That's a good question. You also mentioned the huge capacity for technical problems, even if the Russian hackers don't show up. So Michelle Obama's keynote speech for tonight is already recorded. It's already banked. Bernie Sanders is going to speak live tonight, but he also pre-recorded a speech in case all technological hell breaks loose. So that's just another little side uh, story here. Item number three, David, all political conventions are produced for television. But this year, I feel we're taking the next step, and it's even more of a TV show than a political convention. For one thing, mm-hmm. the DNC has musical acts. Billie Eilish, Common, The Chicks, our old pals, uh, John Legend, Fort Worth's very own Leon Bridges, all performing at the DNC. Here's a clip from David Axelrod on CNN. I thought that nicely summed up the difference between new Zoom convention and old arena convention. This one, and I'm of the mind that, yes, you sacrifice some of the excitement and energy that comes from having crowds, but there is more control and, and creative opportunities when you're actually producing television shows, which is what they're doing. They're going to have celebrity hosts every night, I understand, to kind of weave through all of this, a lot of testimonials, a lot of videos, some entertainers. The speeches will be shorter. It will be faster paced. My guess is it will be better viewing than the kind of anachronistic kind of convention that we're used to. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. We've seen this in other, you know, arenas. Uh, I guess, no pun intended. Um, certainly, the NBA has become more of a television show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my my first love, professional wrestling, has taken itself out of stadiums and gone into a basically a closed set, become much more of a television show than whatever it was before, however you would define it. This is, there's a lot of crossover, obviously, between pro wrestling and politics, and this is another example of how they're, this is, they, they are, um, pivoting i guess they're 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 you know kind of leaning i mean tell the, the tv production tv production has always been a huge part of politics i mean at least for the past 50 years 60 years whatever sure. i mean a long time but now they're sort of giving it the weight of being the primary part right i mean it's not just the show it's not just the presentation it is the production and um and yeah that that's going to be in a lot of ways like with shortening the the length of speeches that's a you know, this is because of COVID, but it is we're they're finally sort of keeping up with the times. That walks us into a question I saw brought up in the Washington Post, which is, so we're moving from a kind of C-SPAN-y arena thing where politicians are going up and speaking often for ponderous lengths of time into a more slickly produced television show. Mm-hmm. If you are one of these elusive, persuadable voters out there, 
are you more persuaded by the former or are you more persuaded by the latter? And what I mean by that is, is there something about the old school nature of it that would have kept you watching? Whereas the second kind of more slickly produced version, you think, Ooh, this feels like propaganda. This feels like the Democrats trying to sell me something in the Mm. form of an ad. What do we think about that? Well, obviously I think if, you know, if they do, the propaganda well you don't acknowledge you don't know that you're watching propaganda <laughs> i guess True. but um i mean listen i don't think you and i would be doing this podcast and i'm sure a lot of the people listening to this probably wouldn't be listening to it if they didn't have some affection for the sort of old-fashioned pomp and circumstance that went into you know conventions of yore it's the same reason we like you know go to church and watch golf and stuff you know i mean these are it's it's part of what <laughs> makes us you know what makes up our dna but we're not immune to, to to make a commercial or make a speech or do anything with the intention of, quote unquote, going viral does not make it a separate thing from what we're interested in. It just makes it a sort of slightly different category. And we're not immune to, it, to the effects of it. Right. I mean, I don't I don't think that um, I think that for, you know, I think that being backed into a corner could like this could really suit, you know, the, the party and, and American politics, you know, overall uh, really well. So we'll we'll see though. Uh, a bunch of Democrats just fainted when you mentioned that the convention is going to be like going to church or watching golf. No, the old convention, the new con- the new convention is going to be like hanging out with Logan Paul on a. Oh. I don't even know what All they right. do. Chuck Schumer just fainted at that <laughs> idea. Then I actually saw Reed Epstein. The New York Times has pointed this out a couple of times that this is not a joke. Democratic convention planners or bigwigs were influenced by this April's NFL draft. Yeah. in planning the convention. So David, just think of this. For, forget the forget the idea of Zoom and and going to different places and all that and cameras and all that stuff. A major party's political convention has been aesthetically influenced by the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. What a time to be alive. Amazing. I don't I, listen, if they want to give I mean yes, the NFL draft deserves the credit for everything. If if they just took turn the entire uh, production of the convention over to Adam Silver and the NBA, wouldn't that be a net positive and not just because we generally like their product, but because they figured out how to do fake crowds and and the immediacy of of empty rooms, you know, I mean and, and make it really feel like you're watching something uh with weight and significance even though uh you know, in lesser hands, it might look like a YouTube highlight reel or something. I mean, it's. It, I think that there's a lot of there's there is a lot of uh, examples out there, or you know, or there are a few very significant examples out there for the DNC to be to be copying from, and and let's hope that they get it right. So on that note, at political conventions, the crowd is usually a character. Four more years, lock her up. Well, Michael Scherer in the Washington Post reports that, in fact, the DNC is going to do something like the NFL draft. They're going to have real-time reactions, I'm quoting here, of delegates that can be broadcast to the country as if they were in the same room as the speakers. But Axelrod made this point on CNN where he said, look, the convention this year is going to be more like a fireside chat than a giant political speech. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that really benefits Biden because I'm not sure if Biden has the energy to light up an arena and say bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive, like he did back in the 2012 at the DNC. Mm-hmm. But he can come off very well, as we saw on Wednesday, in a more intimate setting. What do you think about that? Oh, man. I mean, I, I think I think the gist of what you're saying is right. It's a little bit, you know, whether or not it helps him, a little bit disheartening to think that he would be so you would so favor one format over another, but you know, personal distress aside, um, <laughs> I don't know if uh, fireside chat was not, I mean, that that's not a phrase that, that I, you know, went to on my own, but I think that's a sort of interesting point of comparison. Well, just think um, of it like this. Trump is an arena band, right? Trump is Metallica. Mm-hmm. Part of Trump's power, no matter how crazy it is, uh, the words that are coming out of his mouth is the fact that the crowd is just going bonkers when Trump is talking. Mm-hmm. So if you take that away from both of them, that hurts Trump to me a lot more than it hurts Biden. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think that um, certainly without a crowd and without, you know, the chance and without everything else, and frankly, with an uh, an audience who is having to pay attention to the words you say, as opposed to the manner in which they're delivered, uh, I, th- I think that certainly 
benefits Biden. It, in, a, in a contest of actual words and real, real ideas, you know, Biden's going to win out. All right, David, one absolute media favorite at convention time. I speak of the convention party turncoat. This is the person who's a member of one party or was a member of one party, but then speaks at the other party's convention. Sure. This year's turncoat is John Kasich, former Republican governor of Ohio and a former Fox News host who is speaking Monday night on behalf of the Democrats. And the party turncoat, I feel, always works in this particular key, which is more in sorrow than in anger. Mm -hmm. He either says explicitly or implicitly, I didn't leave my party, David. My party left me. Mm -hmm. I was I was a Republican when there was such a thing as normal Republicans, or I was a Democrat when there was such a thing as normal Democrats. And now they have left me. Uh, remember Joe Lieberman at the RNC in 2008. The late Zell Miller, remember him, former Democratic governor and senator from Georgia, who appeared at the RNC in 2004 at Madison Square Garden. I was actually in the hall for that speech. Listen to a little bit of Zell Miller from 04 bemoaning the death of bipartisanship. Time after time in our history, in the face of great danger, Democrats and Republicans worked together to ensure that freedom would not falter. But not today, motivated more by partisan politics than by national security, today's Democratic leaders see America as an occupier not a liberator. And nothing makes this Marine matter than someone calling American troops occupiers rather than liberators. That's less of a I didn't leave my party, my party left me speech than a I didn't leave my horse and buggy, my horse and buggy <laughs> left me speech. Um, uh, yeah, Zell Miller was a real, I mean, it got a lot of attention at the time. Yes. I find it hard to imagine that any fair-minded person watched that and said anything else other than, you mean, how was that guy not a Republican two days ago? But whatever, you know, I mean, that was, he was he was one of the stragglers, you know, one of those, the last little Dixiecrats hanging on, and uh, he, he had his moment in the sun. Yeah, it was also important to remember that Democrats had voted overwhelmingly to give Bush the authorization to invade Iraq, including John Kerry, who was running for president mm -hmm. in 2004, and Hillary Clinton, who would run twice later. But never mind that. John Kasich, by the way, on CNN yesterday, hinted that another former Republican official will endorse Joe Biden. So, David, there are even more turncoats yet to come. All right, it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, David, where we yeah. celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. All right, David, in the champions league quarterfinals, notice my confident narration here. Like I have any idea what I'm talking about. Bayern beat Barcelona by a score of eight to two. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. You ate to see it. You ate to see it. Thanks to Kyle Boone and 12 news Mitch Carr. David, do you ever feel more divorced from world culture than when people are talking trash about soccer online? <laughs> Boy, I'd hate to be no. Barcelona like, right now. You ate to see it is not, I mean, <laughs> yes, that is a like direct reaction to that score, but that's also, we all know that it, we all have examples of tweets that we just have in our back pocket that we're waiting, we've talked about this, waiting for the right time, mm -hmm. the perfect time to roll them out. That is just an example of the world having like every soccer fan in the world having that joke in their back pocket and waiting for the score to be the opportunity for them to roll it out. David, there was another boat parade on behalf of Donald Trump. They are still doing this, at least in Pinellas County, Florida. Listen to the metaphor Fox News host Pete Hegseth lunged for right here. Thousands of patriots hit the high seas for a record-breaking Trump boat parade in Florida. Crowds of Trump supporters showing up on boats and bridges. They needed more than 1,180 boats, did I see that right, to break the record. They ended up beating it with 1,600 boats. Drone footage capturing the sheer size of the parade as it stretched through Pinellas County outside Tampa. And those are your headlines. That's pretty cool looking, Pete, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Guinness Book of World Records boat parade. Like The Spanish Armada's got nothing on Trump supporters down there. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, they do know what happened to the Spanish Armada, don't they? <laughs>
Kind of reminiscent of Brad Parscale comparing the Trump campaign to the Death Star. It's like, <laughs> did you get to the end of A New Hope? See what happened to the Death Star? No. And finally, David, Herman Cain, GOP presidential candidate businessman, passed away back on July 30th. Yeah. His Twitter account made an announcement of his death and had the funeral information in the days after that. But then, two weeks after his passing, Herman Cain tweeted. It was just the most generic anti-Kamala tweet you can imagine, too. <laughs> With so many good reactions to that. Uh, take a picture of yourself holding a newspaper. That's from our very own Jason Concepcion. Another one. Like Prince, Herman Cain left hours of unreleased materials behind <laughs> at his death that can now be mined for post. Uh, I love this one. Fess up. Who said Herman Cain three times into a mirror? <laughs> and finally, the reason people keep tweeting on here even after they die is because this is hell. Thanks yes. to John Fogdy. If you took the gloomiest possible interpretation of Herman Cain's recent tweets, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. In the notebook dump, David, it is NBA playoff time. Playoffs start Monday. Quadruple headers today on ESPN and on Turner on Tuesday. So let's do a couple of quick media notes. First of all, is the big free agent of the offseason. No, it's not a player. Because at the end of August, Sham Sharania's contracts with the Athletic and Stadium will be up. Both outlets want to retain him, but given that the NBA playoffs are going to go through early October, the pressure will be on for an outlet to go get his services in the middle of the postseason. Sharani has been with the Athletic and Stadium since 2018, and lest we forget, he is 26 years old. What do you make of that impending free agency? I don't even know. I mean... One would assume, or it would be easy to assume that, you know, his employers are wise enough to to sign him to a very short-term extension as soon as this new postseason system was laid out. But it might also be really in his interest to just say no. I mean, I don't know. He's one of, he's one of a very, very few people in professional sports journalism who are if not indispensable, then irrepressible, right? I mean, if he if 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 he said, I'm not signing a new contract, and the Athletic and Stadium said, fine, we're not going to give you any airtime, that wouldn't really change our perception of Shams, right? He's a benefit to them and not to, I mean, they're much more so than they're a benefit to him. I mean, then he's, yeah, than they're a benefit to him. I, I it's really, really interesting. Um, I, I, if he jumped ship in the middle of the playoffs. Yes. I mean, it's not exactly Hulk Hogan joining the NWO, or I guess that's not the right metaphor. It's not exactly ravishing Rick Rude showing up on Monday Nitro the same night he was on uh, Monday Night Raw, but it would be pretty. It would be pretty exciting, and what a boon for whoever got him, right? That you now are getting New York Times and whatever. I mean, anybody else stories written about you because of this coup you pulled off, right? You I mean that's a. If you're looking, if you're if you're a sports desk in, in need of a you know little PR push, that could be enormous. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine on the ESPN pregame show, Woj is on there and he goes, you know, I'm not going to break this little nugget. I have somebody <laughs> else who wants to break it. And then just out of a door, Shams walks out. That'd be absolutely incredible television. Yeah, yeah, with the stadium championship belt around his waist, that would be just really incredible. Just like throws it in a trash can. Like, okay. <laughs> Another thing I want to bring up for you, David, as you know, I really value my role here at the ringer as NBA tap the brakes guy. It can be a <laughs> lot of NBA triumphalism going on. I just, I want to be the guy going there. Let's just, let's just, let's just take a breath. Everybody. I said that at the beginning of this bubble, when people were saying even before the first NBA game that, Hey, the system worked, the bubble worked, the NBA figured this out. Whereas the other leagues have been slower to figure this out. I'm now getting to the point between the story that Zach Lowe had in ESPN the other day about the NBA helping develop the saliva test that is mm -hmm. now becoming this very helpful thing for the world in terms of testing for the coronavirus, in terms of the NBA having basically locked down the bubble quite effectively as they yep. head here into the postseason. Again, knock on wood, it could change tomorrow, but so far, so good. Are we about to enter the greatest era of NBA triumphalism in history? Have we just, have we opened the box now? And and maybe deservedly so. If they pull this off, not only pull off a season in the middle of a huge public health challenge, but actually develop or help develop technology that can make the public health challenge better. I might even have to just 
resign my office as NBA tap the brakes guy. <laughs> I might be leading the charge. This is incredible. You're not even mentioning the the possibility that they that you know, heaven forbid, MLB or later the NFL actually has to like cancel, like yes. you know, short in the season early or cancel some significant number of games. I mean, if they if they just out outpace the competitors, <laughs> then that's huge. But you're right. If they're working in a, like a geopolitical scale, um, I mean, I guess it wasn't that long ago that we were having conversations about Chinese geopolitics vis-a-vis yeah. uh, -vis the NBA. So I guess that's not too, too surprising. But yeah, I mean, on, on the scientific medical side, that would be, man, that would be wild. We'll talk about talk about using your powers for, the, for good instead of evil. That's That's been pretty incredible. Yeah, not a Josh Hawley geopolitical scale, but a but a just unbelievable, uncontrovertibly useful geopolitical scale. That's incredible. One more note for you about betting odds. There's something weird going on right now because sports books aren't sure who the favorite to win the title will be. I often feel that there's a lot of hypey talk right before any sports postseason. This thing is wide open. Anybody could win the title. Mm -hmm. At least according to the sports books, this is actually true. According to ESPN, it's the first time there hasn't been a clear-cut title favorite heading into the playoffs since 2015. The beginning of the Golden State Warriors run, the Warriors were the overwhelming favorites in each of the past five postseasons with odds never longer than plus 175. This season, though, the the favorites odds, whether it be the Lakers, Bucks, or Clippers, are about plus 250 on average. So that's kind of incredible, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a whole, there's so many more variables. I mean, and, and sometimes, you know, the, 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 the sports books lose by relying too much on everything that's happened before, but more often than not, obviously, they come out ahead. I... I just, it's really hard to pick, you know, based on a very minimal number of games. Because um, certainly you have to sort of divorce this from everything we've seen before this season, certainly in seasons before. And, and, and to couple that with the, you know, no, no home courts. No, I mean, there's it's just so many weird things going on right now. It's really intriguing. And yeah, and, and, and this does seem like a wide open field just in even separate from all those idiosyncrasies. So, David, there was a really good piece late last week in Politico about the real relationship, the often tricky relationship between Joe Biden and Barack Obama in the White House. The piece's author, Alex Thompson, joined us to expand on that. When a lot of Democrats think about the relationship Barack Obama and Joe Biden had in the White House, they think of the kind of buddy cop movie we'd be breaking down on the rewatchables. Alex Thompson, one of my favorite political reporters, has a news story at Politico that shows the Obama-Biden relationship is way more interesting than that. It's more like a nuanced character study we'd be breaking down on the rewatchables. Alex Thompson is here to talk about his story. How are you, Alex? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some journalistic behind the scenes. How long did you work on this piece? Um, about about six weeks. Um, but I had you know my my other basically I had two editors fighting. And so I had to still keep doing some pieces uh, during the week while I was working on this on the back bender. Wait, there's like long form editor and short form editor at Politico that are warring for your time, essentially? Uh, in this case, that was exactly what happened. <laughs> Did you find people in the Obama-Biden world eager to talk about the relationship or reluctant? Um, they were reluctant until I got to the point where I had enough reporting that essentially they realized that it was going to be a newsy story. And so they might as well sort of speak to me. But at first, um, I remember one person told told me off the uh, you know, not off the record, but on background saying like, listen, your hunch here is true, but no one, it's in, not in anyone's interest to talk to you right now because <laughs> they want this to be a seamless, uh, you know, baton, uh, baton exchange from Obama to Biden, and they want to keep up the body, the buddy cop routine. So that's a happy Rubicon to cross as a reporter, right? Uh, you're not going to talk to me, but now I know this much. So you have to talk to me because otherwise the story is going to be worse for you, right? Exactly. I mean, it, it's such a great feeling when, because especially you don't know if you're actually going to get there at the beginning. And people are just saying, no, no, no. And then by the end, you know, I had Ted Kaufman, his longtime chief of staff, the guy who's heading up his presidential transition, talk to me, and Anita Dunn, who was in the Obama administration and then is a senior advisor on Biden's campaign, talk to me. Uh, Jen Psaki, the White House communications director during the Obama years, talked to me, a bunch of Clinton people. So it just, uh, it took a while, but once you got 
there, uh, sort of the floodgates came, came open. And then at the end, people were like, uh, you know, oh, I know I didn't talk to you before, but do you have time to talk now? Uh, so <laughs> They're I, asking you. Yeah, exactly. So. so the simple version of Obama-Biden is this. Biden is the ultimate loyal second-in-command, and Obama has this huge affection for Uncle Joe. What's the real version of the relationship that you found? So there, like any sort of uh, spin, there is like a kernel of truth in that story. And that is that they have like a very close personal friendship and relationship, often based on sort of their mutual devotion for their families. But the truth is that they are incredibly different politicians who were put together in a shotgun marriage. And that not only do they see uh, politics differently, but they practice it incredibly differently. And as a result, there was tension the entire time with, you know, Obama officials rolling their eyes at Joe, Bi- at Joe Biden or old Joe. They thought he was old news. They thought that he had, you know, that, that he had lost this. I mean, before this presidential race, they always viewed him as a guy that had lost a step, that had lost his fastball, that just was the practitioner of an old way of politics that had become extinct with the rise of the Obama phenomenon. And uh, you know, there's there's debate of whether or not that's true or that's not. And we're going to be able to, if he wins, we'll be able to see that tested in real life. But the thing is, you have to realize that this didn't that just happen in a vacuum and that Joe Biden, like, felt that all eight years. He felt this sort of, this technocratic eye rolling, as uh, one person put it to me. He felt the disses. He felt disrespected. And Leon Panetta, who was, who served in Congress with Joe, and then was Obama's Secretary of Defense and Bill Clinton's Chief of Staff. He told me that oftentimes it felt that Biden's loyalty to Obama was not reciprocated. And so this has carried over into the 2020 campaign, too, where Biden is in many ways fueled by this desire to prove Obama wrong and to prove Obama's inner circle wrong about him. And it could actually influence the Biden administration as well. Back up just four years, because one big point you make in your piece is the 2016 election, right? It was not absolutely clear that Hillary Clinton was not only going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party, but was going to be sort of Obama's off the record choice to be nominee of the party. How did that come about and how did that affect Joe Biden? Um, Well, it's the ultimate snub, right, where Joe Biden is a loyal VP for six years and Obama in ways very like very subtle in ways not so subtle essentially says i want her and you know if, you know for a guy that's pretty proud and has long felt you know uh, defensive about accusations of being a lightweight uh you know i think this really wounded joe biden to the extent that in a you know it was little noticed at the time but in his 2017 book uh promise me dad near the end he talks about how Obama um, had long been sending him signs that he didn't want him to run. And this, there's a narrative, this is again, one of those things that uh, has been spun into a narrative that uh, eliminates any sort of tension between the two. The narrative that you're gonna hear out there is that Biden was gonna run, but then his son got sick and died um, Bo Biden of, brain, of a very aggressive form of brain cancer. And that was the only reason why Obama weighed in against because he was protecting Joe. And that narrative, uh, it, again, there's kernels of truth in there, but it's, it's mostly fiction. Um, and the truth is that Obama, and especially those closest around Obama, preferred Hillary. So that's an interesting tension that comes up in your piece too. And on the one hand, there's the Obamaites, technocratic sort of style of politics versus the Biden backroom, let's go get Mitch McConnell over a beer and make a deal style of politics. And then there's this idea that they're just very different people. And Obama and Hillary are high academic achievers their whole life who are on this specific track into politics. They're very similar people. They, they read briefing books. They just have this very, very, very specific idea of how to live their lives. And Biden is very different than them. Yeah, Biden, uh, Biden is not a binder person, as uh, some, <laughs> some former officials put it to me. And he, you know, he admitted as much 
in his book, um, you know, his 2007 book, where he says it's important to read the briefings and prep, but he he always viewed it as it's a lot more important to have a sense of the person. And even Biden, you know, takes a little bit, you know, gives gives Obama a little bit of an elbow in his 2017 book, where he's like, I thought the president could be uh, could take too long, was too ponderous, would just get sort of stuck in his own head, whereas Biden is you know, self-described gut politician and has always been. Um, and this this difference between the way that they approach issues where, you know, Obama and Hillary were incredibly academically gifted. They always do the reading. Uh, you know, Biden is not that guy. I mean, he, you know, he is a guy that had to repeat the third grade. He got season D's his first three semesters at University of Delaware, except in uh, PE, uh, an English lit class, and he got an F in ROTC. He's a guy that finished 75th out of 80 or, or 76 out of 85 of his law school class. You know, he is not an academic, but he's also the guy that got elected at 29 years old in a year when Nixon won 49 states. And, you know, it, it's, it's a different si- sort of smarts, but was too often dismissed or was often dismissed as the Obama folks is just not smart. So Obama's sending all these subtle and not so subtle signs to Biden in 2016 saying, I really don't think you should run for president. What does Obama make of Biden's initial campaign in 2020 for the presidency? Well, um, you know, it, it's interesting. It, there was a lot of reporting around the time where, you know, Obama is like, you don't have to do this, you know, don't, don't, you know, he was, he was also seemingly very concerned about Joe Biden not embarrassing himself. Then throughout the entire primary, uh, you, you start seeing these anonymously sourced quotes from Obama himself, which is, uh, you know, don't underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. And at one point saying that, you know, Obama was talking to another presidential candidate, another Democrat, and said, uh, you know, I, when I was running, I, I really had this, uh, you know, this connection with the voters that I've lost. But, you know, who really doesn't have it anymore is Joe Biden, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, even Joe Biden's, you know, aides will tell you that, uh, you know, Obama didn't weigh in for Joe in the primary as much as he weighed in for Hillary in 2016. Now, they'll, they'll again spin this as saying, well, this was agreed upon because we didn't want the primary to be as divisive and we wanted Obama to, to be a unifying figure at the end. Um, but the truth is that Obama world and Obama himself just didn't weigh in for Joe as much as he weighed in for Hillary in 2016. Mm-hmm. And it was always one of the hardest things to believe. I didn't want his endorsement anyway, as Joe Biden said when he didn't declare for president. Yeah, right. You didn't want Barack Obama's endorsement, right? I mean, that just seems you can you can let Obama off the public hook of saying he's not going to endorse his former Veep. But that's yeah. not the same thing as saying I don't want your endorsement, which is just well. The, the interesting thing about that answer also is that, like, I agree with you. It, it's mostly ridiculous, but the way that he phrases it also had, like, I think hints at this tension about Joe trying to prove himself. And it's just like such an odd answer to say, like, oh, I, I told him I didn't want it because I wanted to do this on my own. And there is some truth, like, even after the South Carolina primary, when Joe won, and that was what fueled his comeback, he was telling his, his aides, remember, Obama didn't lift a finger to help us. And, uh, and then his advisor, Anita Dunn, told me that, um, you know, Joe felt it felt deep down that he didn't want this just to be an Obama third term um, or anything else, which, again, is is sort of contradicted by the fact that he had Obama in basically every single ad he ever had. But there's <laughs> yes. but the, there again, it sort of hints at this tension that Joe is uh, grateful for the connection with Obama, but wants to show that it's not just Obama's doing that he is doing this on himself and proving the doubters wrong. One interesting media sidebar in your story is the way that Obamaites are basically the political media right now, at least in terms of talking heads on cable news. You have David Axelrod on CNN. You have the Pod Save America guys. How did Team Biden and Biden himself perceive the comments from those people during the primaries? Uh, well, it, it appears that they took them quite personally. Um, even after Joe Biden won, 
Democrats who talked to his uh, campaign said they just fumed after David Axelrod and, and David Plouffe wrote this New York Times op-ed that told them how to win the presidency. And, you know, I think it's also notable that even as tons of candidates, almost perhaps every candidate that ran for the primary made an appearance on Pod Save America, but Joe Biden never did. And, uh, you know, Tommy Vitor said, uh, you know, the Zoom is always open, but he couldn't speak for the the campaign's uh, scheduling. And, you know, it it hasn't gone unnoticed either because the Positive America guys about two and a half months ago uh, started talking about it on their show. And they, they said, like, we're confused. We don't really understand what's happening, like why he hasn't come on. Um, but it's, again, like one of those little public signs that speaks to a deeper tension in the relationship because a lot of those Obama guys were dismissive of Biden's chances. And uh, clearly he, like Biden or people on his team, uh, heard that. You've, yeah, you've got a great quote from a former Biden official. It says, I don't think he really cares about what a 30-something Pod Save America host thinks about him. And that honestly might be why he's the nominee. <laughs> it was really great. <laughs> yep. You did make the point about Joe Biden's academic track being slightly different than Obama's and even Hillary Clinton's. You mentioned he repeats their grades. So Soledad O'Brien, who has turned into this unlikely lefty media critic, tweets when your piece comes out, when Politico informed me that Biden had repeated the third grade, well, that was such useful information that if that it forced me to rethink my entire value system as a voter. Now, that is a tiny note in your piece that is clearly being used not to disparage Biden, but to just show him as a different character than these other people. What? How does a tweet like that play with you? Um, I mean, I, I, I just, I tweeted back at her and thanked her for reading uh, the, the piece. Um, I mean, there, there are people that are going to try to, uh, you know, they want the narrative to, to exist. And, and some people tried to think I was picking on Joe, uh, but I, but I wasn't. And it, it's just, it, it's one of those factoids, like you said, that speaks to how different, uh, you know, Biden is, I remember there was, uh, in one of the Obama biographies, there was this, um, you know, it went into all these love letters he was writing at like 21 and 22 that had like this very trenchant literary criticism of, uh, of, of poets and all these things. And, you know, Joe Biden just wasn't doing, doing that. They're just different people. And this was a way to, to illustrate that. Let's talk about your career. When you start writing, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, um, I had no, I, I had no idea. And I sort of stumbled into, I sort of stumbled into journalism. I had, I, I think I had like eight jobs in two years after college. And then I actually got lucky and I became Marine Dowd's researcher at the New York Times when I made the switch to writing. And that was a job that was posted publicly online. And I did nine job interviews with like, basically all of her, you know, with, with all these New York times luminaries, uh, that I've been reading for years. And then, um, and, and then also her gay best friend who happened to live in LA where I was living and, uh, got the job. And that's sort of how I, I, you know, it was, it was a, a J school by fire. Let me tell you. Yeah, I can imagine you come to Politico, you got assigned to the Elizabeth Warren campaign. Is that right? In 2020? Yep. Yep. That was right. When it comes to campaign assignments, I always imagine this behind the scenes lobbying effort that it's like the candidates lobbying Biden to be the veep. What, what actually happens and how do you wind up with that assignment? Um, well, in, in this case, actually, um, if there was sort of a, uh, if there was an internal politics lobbying, um, sort of thing, I, uh, was too new to Politico to really participate in it and just sort <laughs> of got saddled, uh, with whatever I was assigned. I mean, actually I was originally assigned to Bernie, but then because we were in a state where uh, I think the editors didn't necessarily take, didn't think Biden was going to do it, that reporter also, that there was a reporter that had both Bernie and Biden by herself. Mm. And then, uh, so eventually, uh, we just like switched up all the roles and I got, I, I got Elizabeth Warren and that, and when I was assigned to Elizabeth Warren, another sign of how bad I am at, at, at internal politicking. Um, I think she was like just raised $5 million and was, you know, fourth or fifth in the polls and everyone had already written her off for dead. So I kind of got lucky in that I got to follow a campaign that really 
uh, you know, had some narrative arc to it where she rose and then she fell and then she was like, maybe a comeback and then definitely wasn't going to make a comeback. Um, you know, as opposed to someone like Beto who just, uh, you know, peaked (laughs) the day he announced. Yeah. Now if I'm a sports writer, right, I'm not supposed to root for the outcome of a game. But if I'm the Golden State Warriors beat writer and the Warriors go on to win the NBA title, that is going to be way better for my career than if the Warriors don't win the NBA title. So as the Elizabeth Warren beat writer, campaign writer, how does that play in your mind? Uh, it's such an interesting question because it's, you know, you're, you, you'd be stupid not to realize the incentives, right? Because, I mean, you just look at what happened to all the Trump reporters um, from the 2016 campaign. If you were lucky enough to be assigned Trump at the very beginning of that race, um, you know, you are probably a very successful reporter right now with like a, a big salary and maybe a TV gig and maybe yeah. a book deal. Um, and so I think it's, it's dumb if you don't realize the incentive structure. I mean, I think in my own head, I'm always trying to, to check myself to make sure that, you know, that, that uh, self-interest isn't swaying my reporting one way or another and just trying to play, uh, trying to play it straight. So long way of, of answering that, you know, I wasn't rooting for Elizabeth Warren. I was really interested in the story of her and her candidacy and how she got to where she was. But yeah, I, I very much, uh, I try to always avoid any sort of uh, rooting interest. But if it just happened to, to occur that Elizabeth Warren won the nomination, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. You know, every every honest political reporter says, right, I'm not rooting for it, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, if she had become the nominee, um, you know, I, I would have been in a very good position, uh, my, you know, my journalism. But then I also wouldn't have had the chance to write this Obama Biden piece. So, you know, you just got to take the story where it leads. But, you know, it would be dishonest to me to not realize that. Uh, professionally, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, being the nominee would have put me in a very different direction. So in March, the coronavirus comes in and suspends basically all in-person campaigning, minus one Trump rally in Tulsa, I guess another in South Dakota. Your colleagues, John Harris and Eli Oaken wrote the other day that journalists are spending more time on their asses than ever. I enjoyed that phrase. What's been the biggest change versus the way you'd normally be covering a campaign right now? Oh, I mean, uh, everything has changed. Um, and yeah, I mean, right now I'm sitting on, I'm right now I'm sitting on my bed, uh, and I'm not in (laughs) Milwaukee, um, which is where I should be. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not seeing events. Um, there's not as much, there's just not as much stuff to cover too, because there's just not as many, like the campaign isn't doing as many things. Um, everyone is moving just a little bit slower and, um, you know, Joe, it's it's weird because we have we have the same number of reporters, but only one candidate, and that one candidate isn't even doing as much as he was doing in the primary. Um, you know, there's no need to sort of switch off and go to different, um, you know, some, you know, to 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 you know, pick up slack for another reporter because there's just not enough things going on. So it's the most bizarre sort of political reporting that you could imagine trying to do this in, in quarantine. Um, trying to think of it as like, like, I mean, there's lots of digital zooms going on, but they're just, you know, it's just not as, it's just not the same. Um, I don't know if there's any other way, better way to put it. We're talking on the first day of the democratic national convention and, and to try one more sports writing metaphor to me, the DNC is a little bit like the Super Bowl. Because when you go to the Super Bowl, there's journalism to do about the Super Bowl. But then there's the benefits you get from sources and subjects seeing you at the Super Bowl. So how much of you going to a convention would be column A and how much would be column B? Um, oh, it, it, definitely a lot of column B when it comes to at least when I've gone to conventions in the past. Because it's really, uh, I don't find it that valuable to go there to see the speeches in person. Cause I think it's just as good on TV. The real value of going is that you can meet up with sources. And that's the other thing about the virtual campaign trail that's really changed is I actually think it's made it easier for the Biden campaign and, and not to leak because, you know, you're not out on the trail and like seeing an aide and, you know, getting drinks and maybe they tell you something they shouldn't have over drinks. 
Um, and that has also been a, uh, you know, a bad part about not being in Milwaukee is you don't get the chance to, to go out to the parties and maybe people slip you a you know, piece of gossip just because you're there. You got to like really chase down the gossip a lot harder now. So this is like the closed locker room in sports writing too. If you're not there and you can't annoy them in person, it's much easier to ignore your text or ignore your call than it is if you were, were actually in front of these people. Yeah, it's actually really uh, shows you why you know, shoe leather reporting is still really important because you just realize how much better able you are to extract information when you are literally in person and they can't escape you. All right. Alex Thompson, his new piece at Politico is the president was not encouraging what Obama really thought about Biden. Thanks so much for doing this, Alex. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is great. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Yeah. Clapped like a uh, fake fan at the DNC. Thursday's pun TV show title about a new gambling thing on ESPN Plus was Better Days. Better Days. We got to vote for Mo Better Blues, which we've used in other contexts. Today's headline, David, comes from Ray's Bait Shop. It's from the Austin American Statesman again. The Statesman, which we used to mock when I was at the Daily Texan, has become like Esquire in the 60s all of a sudden. (laughs) Here's the story. Matthew McConaughey, UT's very own, did an Instagram live chat with Dr. Anthony Fauci. The headline is, Fauci gives Matthew McConaughey blank. And the pun will come from a famous piece of Matthew McConaughey pop culture. David, what was the Austin American Statesman's strained pun headline gives him god i feel like i'm just not there's no way i'm gonna get this matt mcconaughey pop a piece of mcconaughey pop culture yeah so give us not give us the big ones are we going like bongos here like like much recent this is an actual thing an actual thing i just i just didn't specify tv or movie on purpose oh okay um so (laughs) not an off the field matthew mcconaughey (laughs) What he did those car commercials? That was uh, no, it's an he, actual an actual piece of art here. A good thing. What movies has he done? I don't, That's I don't a TV even, show. A TV show. I think there's what only was one. He, I know. What was he on? Why can't H- I think of HBO, it? HBO. Oh, Noir uh, in the South. Yeah, uh, True Detective. All right. Uh, so he get um, Fauci gives s- Matthew McConaughey. Uh, uh, <laughs> This but is this is strange. I'm telling you. Cool. Uh, 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 true. True. Uh, infection. Uh, true. Um, <laughs> That'd be quite uh, a story. Did did uh, true. Uh, I have no idea. Fauci gives Matthew McConaughey true directives. True That's directives. <laughs> he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. Okay, so the Austin American Statesman is not Esquire in the 60s. Resolve. <laughs> yeah. We're back with listener mail. Hit us up right now. And please join us Thursday because nothing makes this Marine matter than you missing our lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>